In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps a $5 minimum balance required. Welcome to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, Two Under, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun, Bionic Gloves, and the McLemore Club. Experience life above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Thank you very much for being here and joining me tonight and for voting the show up to number 11 in the September edition of the Podcast Magazine Hot 50 list. We're moving up from number 14 last month. We're right on the cusp of breaking into the top 10. Please continue to vote by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. I appreciate your support so very much. Tonight, folks, I'm very excited to bring you two great legends of the game. First up is going to be two-time major champion Dottie Pepper. Dottie has had an amazing career so far. She won 17 times on the LPGA Tour. You can see her now covering the game over on CBS Sports. I'll talk to Dottie about her college days back at Furman when she was named Female Athlete of the Year twice. We'll also talk about her experience playing in six Solheim Cups. Her two major championships came at the ANA Inspiration, which back in the day was the Dinosaur Classic. We'll talk about those. And her run-in with a charging bear while broadcasting the 2008 U.S. Senior Open. Looking forward to having Dottie as part of the show. She's going to join me here in just a few minutes. Following her, I'll get a visit from 1978 PGA champion John Mahaffey. Going to talk to John about his college days as well when he was back at the University of Houston. He won the 1970 National Championship, was the individual winner there, and he also led the team to -to back-to-back national championships in 1969 and 70. He joined the PGA Tour during the prime of some of the greatest players of all time back in the early 70s. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that 78 PGA and his experience playing on the 1979 Ryder Cup team, plus his transition to being a broadcaster. Really looking forward to having John as part of the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the McLemore. As you guys all know, my buddies and I, we were up there for our annual golf trip not that long ago, and it was amazing. Everything about the place was first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility they have there is fantastic. The on-premise restaurant, which is called The Craig. 
had outstanding food and service, and the course lived up to every great expectation that we had for it. I can't say enough great things about the place. Folks, go online to themacklemore.com to see how spectacular it is for yourself. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones, and our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said, outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. And Golf Digest agreed, oh, by the way, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why everybody is saying that by checking out the course and the resort online at themacklemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf ball. High draw? Check. Low fade? Check. Bump and run? Out of the sand or flop shot? Check, check, and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better than them all, and that's a new TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf no matter the shot. So whether you need to hit high over the trees, under or even through them, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check them out by going online to taylormadegolf.com for more information. Okay, now joining me here on Next on the Tee is Dottie Pepper. Let me give you some background on Dottie. She's from Saratoga Springs, New York. Early in her career, at age 15, she won the New York State Amateur in 1981, plus the New York Junior Amateur titles in 1981 and 83. She was a member of the Junior World Cup team in 1981 as well, and was a low amateur at the 1984 U.S. Open. She played her college golf at Furman, where she was a three-time All-American and lettered all four years. She won five collegiate tournaments, which is tied for the most in school history with Betsy King and Beth Daniel. Her career stroke average of 75.96 is still one of the top 15 all-time there. She had top five finishes in the NCAA National Championship in three of her four years during her college career. She was named their Female Athlete of the Year twice in 1985 and again in 87. She was inducted into their Athletic Hall of Fame in 1991, and their annual Coaches Award is named in her honor. She was a member of the 1986 Curtis Cup team, turned pro in 88, and won 17 times on the LPGA Tour, including two majors at the 1992 and 1999 ANA Inspirations. Her winning score of 19 under in 1999 is still the lowest score to par in a major. She had five other top fives in majors while on tour and was a member of six Solheim Cup teams. She retired from competitive golf in 2004. She began working as a golf commentator in 2005 for the Golf Channel and NBC. She's also been in the booth and on-course commentator for ESPN and now CBS. She was inducted into the South Carolina Athletic Hall of Fame in 2008, and it's a great honor having her with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Dottie, thank you for joining me. Chris, thanks. <laughs> that was a lot. You've done a lot. That's why you're in so many Hall of Fame. I'm just old, that's all. <laughs> uh, that's funny. <laughs> Dottie, uh, I want to start our time tonight by going all the way sort of back to the beginning with you. I know your father, Don, played baseball in the Detroit Tigers system, had some really good seasons for their AA and AAA team, hit 302, 19 home runs in 1966, was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, March 11th edition in 68 with Johnny Bench and a few other great rookies to watch that year. Talk about your dad and growing up in a sports household. Well, it was a very competitive sports household that, as you can imagine, I grew up in. And, and going back to Sports Illustrated, I, I, to this day, give my dad the hard time that he may have gotten the cover, but I got the byline because I wrote for him for about five years. So 
you know, the, the needles are always out. <laughs> always out. But, you know, my dad laid, laid a great foundation for me as a professional athlete, um, partly because of some of the things he felt like he made uh, mistakes with and partly things that he um, he just knew as kid as a super type A personality. So I, I was um, I, I was one up at the turn, let's say that, on, on a lot of people just because of what my dad did and, and how he did it. And, Dottie, I read that you were a skier at a young age, and it was actually your grandmother who got you started in golf. Talk about that. It was. It was my, my dad's mom. Uh, so it was all on that side of the family. But the skiing was actually uh, on my other side of the family. My family is now entering the 81st year of um, the Alpine Sports Shop here in Saratoga Springs that my grandfather built the building, and uh, they've owned the shop for, I think, 65 or 70 of those 81 years. So the skiing's on one side of the family, the golf was on the other, uh, and I came out somewhere in the middle doing both. And uh, yeah, it was my grandmother on my dad's side that uh, was the player. I mean, she she was at her best about an eight, and recognized that it was an opportunity to spend some time with her granddaughter. and And I loved it from the from the very beginning. Had a had a series of five lessons from a journeyman PGA professional that we used to come through this area, uh, giving some golf lessons, but also kind of playing the ponies in, in August, Saratoga being the hot spot of, of uh, horse racing in, in July and August in, in, in the international sports world. And I, I loved it. And we've gradually moved on from there. And uh, she, was, she was at the very, very start of it. Dottie, at age 15, you win the 1981 New York State Am, which is amazing for a kid of that age. And I imagine you're playing and beating women at least twice your age along the way to that victory. What do you recall about that event? Uh, I recall my, my parents saying, oh, my gosh, she's got a chance to win. What the heck are we going to do? Came out, of, <laughs> came out of the blue. I'd never even, I'd never even entered the championship before. I, I, I played in two juniors. The year prior, I'd, I had lost in the final to Jamie DeWeese from Oak Hill. And, you know, it was in Rome. And the rule was if if we could drive, we could play. So we found um, on the camp, spite, camp base, had my grandfather's Winnebago, and away we went. And I kept winning matches. <laughs> and and I, and I Dad was dad was still working. Uh, well, still working now. But he was working, and he, he came back out Friday. Because I had reached the semifinals, and he's like, "Well, heck, now I got to go home. We got to feed the dog, feed the cat, and now I'm going to come back on Saturday." <laughs> so you know, it was a couple. It wasn't very far away, but you know, never nobody really uprooted anything because they didn't think I'd get very far. And sure enough, I went all the way to the final and won. And a few years later, you decide to attend Furman and play your college golf down south. How does a girl from Saratoga, New York, decide? to play her college golf at Furman in South Carolina? Uh, by writing a high school uh, guidance counselor letter to Clemson, of all places. Uh, you know, the old drop matrix printer, when you threw in the, the various fields that you were in, interested in, and it was going to, regionally, I wanted to be south of the Mason-Dixon line because I knew I had to get someplace where I could play some some winter golf. I uh, wanted to be in communications, four-year school, and out popped. Clemson as one of the options. So I wrote my, my letter, you know, kind of pitching my, my sort of playing career and they didn't have a women's golf team, but the coach there sent it to the golf coach at Furman. And that's how I ended up there. It was, it came down to TCU and, and Furman. And thankfully 
uh, ended up where I was because it was for me the best place that I that could have ended up. It was an opportunity to get a, a worthwhile, usable, achievable four-year degree uh, golf course on campus, as it still is now. Didn't have much of a practice facility then, but we sure do now. And I just, for me, it was the, it was the right place, the right size, the right focus. And you know, I'm, I'm a big-time supporter of the Paladins all the way through. So you win five golf tournaments during your collegiate career. You helped the team win several team events. Talk about, you know, the time there. What was the most fun that you had while you were at Furman? Well, all three or four years we were in contention for the national championship. That's that's always fun. And on graduation day, we lost by a shot to San Jose State. Um, gal by the name of Ann Jones from Australia sculled a shot in the hole at the 18th hole at the, at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. And we ended up losing by a shot. Thought thought the putt that I made at the 18th hole for birdie was going to send us into a playoff, but there was no live scoring. And it turned out the skull shot into the hole by Ann was the one was the shot that that made the difference. So you know, we had four seniors and a sophomore on that team, so it was a, a happy day because all four of us had graduated. But to come up short, one short from the national championship after the 78 team that had. Beth Daniel and Betsy King on it had won the national championship was a little little bittersweet. Let's fast forward a little bit to 1984 and the U.S. Open. You were the low amateur that week. Overall, you finished tied for 22nd. What was that week like for you? It was a world changer for me because it got me into all the top-level amateur championships, um, including the amateur that year at the Broadmoor in Seattle. And it was a foot onto the 86 Curtis Cup team. It, it changed a lot of things for me because it opened doors and it was, you know, not very far away. I, I couldn't have played. I couldn't have afforded to play if it was on the West coast, but it was in Salem, uh, Peabody, Massachusetts, which continues to be one of my favorite golf courses ever. Donald Ross classic. Um, it, it just, it changed, changed everything for me, but it also made me realize how difficult it was, how hard I worked to just achieve a tie for 22nd, I missed by a one shot of being automatically qualified for the year for the next year, flipped out a birdie putt at the last. Um, but you realize they weren't playing for a whole lot of money and you're working really hard. So it reinforced to me that I needed to stay in school and get a degree in case things didn't work out as, as they did, ended up working out. And Dottie, you get your first win on the LPGA Tour at the 1989 Oldsmobile Classic and a playoff over another firm and legend you just mentioned, Beth mm -hmm. Daniels. You would beat her again in a playoff a few years later at the Sun-Times Challenge. What was it like beating the person whose footsteps you were following in at Furman? Kind of have to block that out. Uh, because, yeah, you, you know, when you're in the clubhouse at school and there's always the standards that you compare your, your progress to. And, and Beth and Betsy and Sherry Turner, uh, Cindy Farrell were all the, the players that, that were up there that you just, well, I'm, I'm trying to do what they did. And I think my first one was particularly particularly memorable because it, it didn't even end on Sunday. We ran out of daylight and had to come back and finish the playoff on Monday. So that was that was pretty wild stuff when you think about coming to sleep or not going into play extra holes against someone you had looked up to for so much of your life. Dottie, you get your first major championship at the 1992 ANA Inspiration back when it was uh, the Nabisco Dinosaur Classic, and you. You beat Julie Inkster in a playoff, but it was sort of a wild finish. Julie had a one-stroke lead over you and Patty Sheehan going into 18, which was a par five. 
Patty hits it over the green and you know with her third shot and, and it doesn't factor into the playoff. But Julie sticks it in there, I don't know, but ten, twelve feet. And then you step right up after her and you hit it to what? About what's that? And she left the birdie putt short. Right. She is at 10, 12 yeah. feet. You you come right up and you hit it inside of her to about four feet. Give it a little fist yep. pump as you go uh, up towards the green. And, uh, yeah, take it from there. So I, it was a off off the left half of the hole, uh, slightly uphill putt. And Julie had left her birdie putt short. So off we went to the 10th hole. And, and Judy hit, Julie hit a poor shot there off the tee. And I, I made a routine two-putt par from about, I don't know, 15 feet or so. And uh, so this is this is the the, the bar time bet that you'll you'll uh, probably win if you you'll say well Dottie Pepper won dinosaur twice well she must have gone in the lake twice well I didn't because ten is landlocked and <laughs> I didn't have to dive the first time but I went in the second time. <laughs> but don't sell don't sell the uh, the putt on eighteen you had to make you know don't sell that short I mean you're standing over one of those knee knockers I'm guessing. You know, like I say, about four feet that you still had to make for birdie in order to send it to the playoff. I mean, Julie could have won it with the birdie that she left about an inch short, but you're still standing over mm-hmm. not such an easy putt. What was going through your mind? How'd you kind of collect yourself and make that putt? Um, you just kind of, you just pick out a spot, and you know you're not you're not even at that point you're not even thinking. You're, you're the only thought in your head is find a way to make the putt, and don't accept anything else but that. And that's what happened. It had to go in. You will it in, and, and and you move on. And like you mentioned, you come back seven years later. This time, you win by six strokes over Meg Mallon. You had three brilliant rounds after an opening round 70. You shoot 66, 67, 66 to essentially blow away the field by those six strokes. But was it easier the second time around? I'm not so sure. It was all that much easier. I mean, I did have a three-shot lead going to the last day, and as as Judy Rankin said that that day when they came on camera watching the show after, she said, you know, a three shot lead and she's correct can be a lot if you're playing well and get off to a good start, but it can it can be terrifying if you don't get off to a good start because now you've you've put everybody back in the in the field. Unfortunately, I did get off to a good start, but it was I think the tone was really set in the third round. It played with Meg as well on Saturday and. It was just really good golf by by both of us. Kelly Robbins was the third person that was in that in that final pairing, final grouping, and it, it became just a count punch counter punch. And I remember standing on the 17th tee on Saturday, and just said to myself, "You will not be the one to blink. You will not be the one to blink." And I just refused to let my foot off the gas pedal. And yeah, I, I hold out a couple of shots throughout the week. I hold a a, a third shot at nine for eagle. Uh, ended up pulling out at at 16 in the final round for Eagle, which, you know, the, the tournament was essentially in my pocket by then, but that was sort of a, just an exclamation point. But I, I just, I, I came in, in really ready knowing I was playing well for that, for that particular major championship. And it, it, it lived up to everything I had hoped it would be. Dottie, talk about making the transition from being a player on the LPGA tour to then carrying a microphone and commentating on it with, broadcasting something that you studied and you trained for did it come naturally to you was it tough navigating the minefield you know calling what you saw and being critical of some of your former peers what was that like for you uh it was something yes i always wanted to do that was my that was really my my plan b if i wasn't to have made it on work 
yeah, to have made it on tour, to, to have played well enough to call it that my career. But I, I had a great tutelage from, from Judy Rankin and, and people like like Mike Tirico. But I, I think one of the most formative people early in my career was Tommy Roy, the producer, the, still the head producer at NBC Sports. And Tommy's philosophy was that you've earned this because you've paid your dues. You've hit good golf shots. You've thrown up on yourself. Talk about golf the way you know how to play the game, and the microphone does not know whether you're male or female. And it was that sort of mentality that freed me up from the very beginning. And it was also a philosophy at NBC that Johnny Miller's mic was always open, whether it was on – well, I sat beside him when it was a women's tournament. But when it was the guys' tournament, Johnny's mic was still always open. And Tommy was a believer that as a walker, if you had something that you didn't agree with that Johnny said, you talked about it. If you backed it, you had your homework done and you believed something and knew it to be true, then you go ahead and, and you can go against Johnny. And I thought it made it made for great television. It, it freed me up. It gave me, I think, a, self, a bit of self-confidence and also instilled the value of doing homework because you didn't always agree with what Johnny said. Now, you worked at the Golf Channel with uh, a good friend of the show, Keith Hirschland. Right? So it was sort of a six degrees of Keith Hirschland with you and John Mahaffey joining me a, a little bit later. But talk about uh, your time there at the Golf Channel and working with Keith. So I worked with Keith on live shows. And it was, it was I did all, all sorts of golf with, with Keith. Um, did everything from men's amateurs to PGA Tour golf to LPGA Tour golf to stuff that was overseas. And we always kind of laughed. He would, we'd walk in the trailer in the morning and he'd look at everybody. And he did this to a lot of people. It wasn't just me. He'd look, you're going to wear that on air today. But he always, and he always had the <laughs> best sock. Okay. If you're going to criticize what I'm wearing or just be a smart Alex, I want to see your sock. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I know you and John Mahaffey are friends and I'm looking forward to having John as part so. of the show here in a little bit. Talk about your yeah. relationship with him. Well, John, John sat, side-by-side side with Brian Hammond, who I came through the Golf Channel and Keith Hirschland's tutelage with for, for years. And that's really how we became friends. We've gone back and supported Brian's golf tournament back in Indiana. And John is just one of the great souls in, in all of golf. And he has, I, I think, so many more stories and so much more value to bring than anybody's ever appreciated. I just, I always have a soft heart, soft place in my heart for John Mahaffey. I just love him. And I think most of us look at someone broadcasting the game and being on TV as living sort of a glamorous life, but you're living out of a suitcase 32 weeks a year, plus I'm sure hundreds of hours of preparation, airports, hotels. Talk about the side of broadcasting we don't see. Well, you just described it really well. <laughs> um, it's it's not really all that glamorous, and I think that's what. But people, uh, people who haven't made it realize that whoa, that's a lot of work, and it's not, it's not easy. I mean, rain delays. We're stay, we're obligated to stay there almost all of it. You think about, um, you know, studio work. I remember sitting in in the Orlando studio with Brian Hammond, and we're waiting for a Champions Tour. It was people. Well, yeah, it was the Champions Tour then. Waiting for a playoff to finish. They were out on the West Coast, and sitting there and watching Hurricane Katrina barrel into New Orleans and feeling so helpless. So you have these these moments when what you're doing just seems so minuscule. But yeah, the late nights and 
trying to get to flights and having canceled flights and not spending time at home. I think a lot of people don't realize that we have sports on television over the weekends, all the holiday weekends in the United States, because a lot of people don't have those weekends off and they're working in sports television. And if I could you know, give props to a lot of people on, at every network, that's what I would say. Just people at home you know, watching sports on, on holiday weekends, it's because a lot of people are out there working for it. And, Dottie, we're on the heels now of this year's Solheim Cup. You were a member of six of those teams. Um, when you look at our latest run, we've lost four of the, you know, the last six. And uh, after winning eight of the first 11, talk about your experience being a part of the Solheim Cup and, and what you think the U.S. team needs to do in order to kind of flip things back to the way they used to be. Well, I, I was first Solheim Cup team for the United States in, in 1990. It was the last player that was automatically put on the team because of points earned. And I it was just something that I wanted to be a part of from the very beginning. It was put together in less than six months. And we knew what there was the Solheim Cup was announced at a May meeting or a June meeting for the LPGA championship. It was a mandatory meeting for everyone. It wasn't just about the Solheim Cup. But oh by the way, this is going to happen in November at Lake Nona, and points have already accrued. So you could see everybody going, oh, my God, what tournaments did I play well in? What didn't I do? What do I have to do to get on that team? And it was it's, it's part of my DNA. And I think now they've got to have a little more fire in their bellies, and I think they need to flip-flop. when they If they get it back to the United States, it'll, it'll come back here. I'm believing that they're going to go back to even years, and so it'll be back here in 24. I really think they've got to free the players up and start with four balls instead of four since I sense so much tension and so much uh, just tentativeness in what happens playing foursomes out of the out of the hopper for the Americans. But whoever is that captain, I I would just hope they would flip the flip the format and free the girls up to go play, have some fun, and be intense about it. Dottie, just a few more before I let you go, and I want to take you back to the 2008. Uh, U.S. Senior Open at Broadmoor in Colorado. Um, you had a very big furry fan running at you, yeah. which had to be a bit unnerving uh, for you. Do you mind sharing that story? Well, it was we were in commercial break. We we had known all week long that there was there were bears. Uh, it was a drought that summer, and they had come down off the elevations looking for for more food, and it upended a couple of the snack tables on the first and tenth tees at, at the green or at the I'm sorry at the Broadmoor. And we've just been told to be be aware because they'd also gone through the garbage bins in the in the television compound in the evenings. Mom and Cubs were there with her. And at a commercial break, I hear Gary Koch, who's in the eighteenth tower, saying, God, what we're hearing about that the bear, we're hearing it somewhere on the golf course and he's moving. And I said, Where is it, you guys? And I, I was out there with with Langer and Taylor Irwin. And I think it was on a, was, I think it was on a Friday. I think it was Friday, but it was definitely 2008 because the Olympics in Beijing were going on. And I just said, guys, where, where is that bear? I'm like, oh, it's, it's over. It's like three holes for me. I'm going out the opposite direction. I'm like, oh, fine. Well, we get in the next commercial break and I turn to my right and this bear is coming across the, across the slope, charging directly at me. And I, and I, I just remember saying, you guys, you guys, it's the bear. And I, I remember them telling me, you don't, you don't run. So what do I do? I drop a yards book and I run. <laughs> and then I froze because I remembered that I wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> and Roger Maltby being the smart aleck of all times, when we got, when we got into the next commercial break, he said, 
So I have a red red top on and a white pair of trousers. And he said, boy, kid, that was a bad day to wear white, wasn't it? <laughs> and you're damn right. <laughs> but it led sports uh, center that night. And I, and I don't think it was until then that I realized how poorly that could have turned out. He ducked. He went. He went right. I went left, and he went underneath the, the ropes, and up further up into the hills. And they did tranquilize him and give him just a little bit of a trip back up the mountain that night. <laughs> wow, Daddy, I read that you've got a green thumb, and you sometimes volunteer at the local florist. So tell me about that. What would Better Homes and Gardens see? What would they do an article on you if they came to your house? Uh, they would see that right now, right now I've been on the road a long time and I've got a lot of work to do fertilizing beds to get them ready to go back to sleep for the winter. But I, it's, it's my relief. It's something I've, I had a, I had a flower garden as a kid and I, I just love it. I had friends that owned the Posey Peddler here in town and helped them out when they were in transition from owning it and, and moving on with their lives into retirement now. And, and I, I love it. I love it. But now it's just more my perennial gardens are my focus. And yeah, after getting back off the road, or getting back home from being on the road, I realized that I'm a little bit up against the eight ball here over the next month to get things uh, in, a, in a healthy way to be ready to go to winter because we don't have easy winters around here in upstate New York. And Donnie, you've written a wonderful book, Letters to a Future Champion, My Time with Mr. Pulver. Talk about your book. Well, it was released in April. Thanks for asking about it. And it's um, it's a tribute to my my mentor, my PGA professional, and the the crux of it is that he taught or reinforced what he taught to me by writing letters and typewritten letters. He was a World War One veteran, and over the course of five and a half years with him, we started working when he was 81 years old. Um, I accumulated over 100 pieces of, of content from him. And over the COVID shutdowns and breaks and slowdowns and going back to a CBS schedule that looked very different because we weren't really allowed out of our room um, when we were on the road. It was all takeout. It was really a, a lot of quiet time. I decided that those letters needed to come out and and be be part of what people could understand about my background, but more really about the foundation of of the game. I mean, he goes back to Seymour Dunn. Goes he has, he has roots all the way back to the beginnings of the game in Scotland and timeless letters, timeless beliefs, timeless technique. And I just, it, it was that was the time to let those things sort of shine. Self-published. Uh, so I'm doing all the, my own marketing. I'm doing all my order fulfillment. And it's been a lot of hard work, but I'll, I'll tell you what, when you, when you get a shipment of, well, I started out with about almost 2000 books end up in my driveway and in my, in my garage, and then backed it up with another almost 4,000 because we sold through the first first run so quickly. One thing I'll never forget is the smell of that book and being just overwhelmed and so proud that I was able to put the things that he believed in uh, into such a book in, in such a manner. So, Dottie, tell our listeners how they can get a copy of it. Uh, you can go directly to my website, it, and it just relaunched a couple of weeks ago, and it's as simple as going to dottiepepper.net, dottiepepper.net. Again, I, I, I see every order come in. I fulfill everything. If there's a request for a personalization, I do it myself. If there's a box in the in the checkout area, and I usually turn everything around within 48 to 72 hours. So um, I, I hope people will 
we'll we'll buy it. There's a there's a paperback version, a hundred weight paper that is less than twenty dollars, definitely less than twenty dollars. So if you got a junior, uh, anybody that you think might benefit from just what we know is so great about the game, uh, mentorship, youth sport, it's it's all right there in two hundred and eight indexed pages with a lot of beautiful photographs. I had such great help from the PGA of America, from the Masters, uh, from the LPGA. It, it was really a, a really beautiful journey getting getting everybody working together on this. Dottie, let our listeners know as well, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing? You mentioned your website. How can they follow you on social yeah. media? Yeah, you can follow me on Dottie underscore Pepper at, on Instagram. And I'm also on there um, on Facebook as Dottie Pepper, the, as it's an athlete page. So go to go to either one of those, and I'll cross-reference them. And also on my website, I do a blog. Um, there are other photos that are on there. There's also some information about what the book is benefiting. We're sending 10% of all the proceeds to the Saratoga War Horse, which is an organization that uses off-the-track equine therapy thoroughbreds um, to help veterans that come back with post-traumatic stress. Well, Dottie, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and be a part of the show. I hope we have the privilege of having you back on again sometime. You're fantastic. Uh, Chris, thank you so much. And give please, please give John my best. Absolutely. Take care, Dottie. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. Same to you. Thanks again. Thanks, Dottie. That's the great Dottie Pepper, at Dottie underscore Pepper on Instagram. DottiePepper.net is the website. Go get a copy of her book, folks. I know I am. And when you have somebody who is in as many Hall of Fames as Dottie is, had such a great career all the way through from college to the LPGA Tour to the broadcasting booth, very similar to my next guest, John Mahaffey. Boy, it's, uh, it's a privilege having her as part of the show. Very much looking forward to catching back up with her. I have about three pages worth of questions, so we've just started to scratch the surface of all the great things she's achieved. So very much looking forward to having her back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, John Mahaffey, I want to remind you about a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, that's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com, and get Square's 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, Distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Bionic Gloves. Whether you're looking to own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Gloves have you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, Bionic Gloves feature Patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also help prevent calluses and blisters, while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. 
Head over to BionicLoves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at Zexio. In 2001, Zexio Strixon began making clubs for men and women, and they've improved on those clubs every year since. I was fit for a set of Zexio 10 irons by a great fitter on their staff. He got me dialed in, and they feel and perform fantastically. They are light. I've picked up nearly 5 miles per hour in swing speed, and they're deadly accurate. Every part of Zexio clubs are made exclusively for Zexio. Everything is light and balanced. Swing weights are made to give us the highest smash factor. And the best part of getting fit for Zexio clubs is hitting it higher and straighter than ever before, changing your game. Zexio clubs are a Golf Digest Hot List Gold winner for 2021. NB Park is a Zexio ambassador, as are Ernie Els and top instructor Martin Hall. See why and how Zexio can help your game as well. Go online to ZexioUSA.com. That's X-X-I-O. USA.com and pick which set is right for you. Okay, now next on the tee with me is 1978 PGA champion John Mahaffey. Let me give you some background on John. He's from Kerrville, Texas, played his college golf at the University of Houston. He was named a first team All American in 1969 and 70. John won the individual title at the 1970 National Championship and he helped the Cougars to back-to-back national championships in 1969 and 70. He earned his degree in psychology, and he was inducted into their Athletics Hall of Fame in 1976. John turned pro in 71. He won 10 times on the PGA Tour, including that 1978 PGA Championship, when he came from seven strokes back with 14 holes to play to win in a playoff. He also won the 1986 Players' Championship. He won once out on the Champions Tour and he was a member of the 1979 Ryder Cup team. In 1983, he was inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame, and I am very excited to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, John, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris, great to be with you. And hey, I love Dottie Pepper. She is so good. Man, has that woman got some talent. Yeah, I think I want to talk about it from a from an athletic standpoint and then over to the broadcasting booth. I mean, you guys had very similar careers. You had a great college career, won several times, won a national championship. You translate over onto the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour and then over to the broadcasting booth and you guys actually spent some time together. I told Dottie this is sort of like the six degrees of Keith Hirschland because Keith is the one that introduced <laughs> us and uh, and Dottie and I know you work with uh, both of them at the at the Golf Channel as well. Talk about that time that uh, that the three of you uh, spent working together. Well, it was really great because she's a true professional and she does her homework and uh, she's not, uh, doesn't have any problem stating her opinion. And I love that in a, in, in a player and also in a broadcaster. Uh, and I think Keith uh, helped mold us both into a lot better broadcasting too. Uh, I remember when I first came on the Golf Channel, Keith was the one that uh, finally got me. My wife wanted me to do it for years. I wasn't playing very well on the Champions Tour, and uh, Keith finally convinced me to come on there. And uh, my deal with the Golf Channel is every time they would come to me, Chris, I'd go, I tell you what, guys. I tell you what, guys. So Keith kept saying, look, everybody's got to go to you. you got to get rid of that. You know, nobody likes to hear that every time they come to you. So <laughs> I'm weird. I, we'd go about two or three weeks. And we might have even been in Hawaii. I'm not sure, but. Keith comes to me and I said, I tell you what, guys, and I hear in my ear while I'm talking, John, 
if I hear that one more time, I want you to put the mic down. I want you to put your clipboard down and walk in. You're done. Now, that's how you break somebody of a bad habit. And, uh, <laughs> but he taught me how to do so, so many of the really great things. Uh, what makes good television? Uh, a guy has an unfortunate happening on the 72nd hole or 54th hole uh, on the Champions Tour, and it costs him the golf tournament, not by his fault. Hits a sprinkler head, goes out of bounds or whatever. And uh, you don't really feel like going over and interviewing the guy because he feels bad enough. But being a player, he said, look, you can go in there and you can talk to him because he knows you know, and he'll make great television. So I think that's when you have a really great producer make you a better announcer. John, I want to go back to the beginning for you and, and uh, talk about your college golf at the University of Houston. I'm, I'm curious, as a kid from Kerrville, Texas, which is a little north of San Antonio, I'm sure all the big Texas schools and those schools around the, around Texas in that region were all after you. Why Houston? Well, actually, they weren't after me. That's the problem. Uh, or, well, what happened was I was a better basketball player in high school than I was a golfer, to be honest with you. And I had several scholarships to play college basketball, not in big schools or anything, but uh, but I was on the golf team, and I'd won uh, a lot of, of uh, high school golf tournaments, and I won our district, regional, and state my senior year. Uh, and I actually uh, and lost to Terry Jastro, uh, who actually went to University of Houston at the same time I did the following year, uh, in a Texas State junior. And I had uh, written a letter to the University of Texas and written a letter to uh, Texas Tech wanting to see if I could walk on and try to, to play on their on their team because I never got a response. Well, with the way Terry and I both played in the Texas State Junior, uh, then we both got uh, calls from Coach Dave Williams wanting us to come down and be part of the freshman team and try to make the, the University of Houston team. So uh, that's basically how I got on there. And Hal Underwood, who was like a – two- or three-time All-American at University of Houston, a couple of times on national championship teams. Uh, he and I played against each other a couple of times in uh, high school when he was a senior and I was like a sophomore. And um, he's the one that, that got me into the University of Houston. Uh, I made like 40 points in a basketball game one time. Coach Williams said, well, if a little kid like you can make 40 points in a basketball game, you got to have a big heart. And that's what we like here at University of Houston, a big heart. So that's how I got in. Wow. John, talk about that 1969-1970 team. You had a lot of talent on that team, obviously winning a national championship. But you had Tom Jenkins on that team. He would go on to win once on the PGA Tour and seven times on the Champions Tour. Bruce Litsky was a member of that team. We all know what a great career he had. Joe Stensick, Corker DeLoach, who was a three-time All-American. Arthur Russell, who was a national junior champion before coming to Houston. Bruce Ashworth was a heck of a match play player. Kip Putterbaugh, who is a, has a great academy out in Carlsbad, California now, and is one of the top 100 instructors in the game. Dave Schuster on that team. Talk about playing alongside of those guys. Well, there were a lot more than that, actually, that went to University of Houston. I think that was our strong point, and that's why Dave Williams had such great teams, because he recruited so well. Junior champions from all over the country, and even all over the world. And uh, Joe Stensick, for instance, he did a stint in the Army and came back out and went to school. So he had a lot of experience uh, in the real world as well. So he had, we had a, a bunch of well-rounded guys, and you played and you qualified all the time. We were playing golf constantly. 
we came to school two uh, months, uh, two months, two weeks before school started, and we were playing 36 holes a day, qualifying, qualifying, playing tournaments. And uh, the first meeting we had, I remember, all we talked about was winning the NCAA, the NCAA. We've got to be NCAA champions. We've got a record to keep up. We've got to be part of this University of Houston pride and, and do this uh, and, and win national championships. That's what we do here. And when they, it's beat into you the entire time here at the University of Houston, when you get to the NCAA and you're on, on, the, on the University of Houston team, you're ready to play. And uh, I think that's why we were so successful. And we had so many wonderful players that uh, there were no slouches that were, that were there. So uh, to make that team, you really had to play well. And he, coach never pushed it. Coach wasn't a teacher, but he, he took the guys that wanted it the most. John, like you mentioned, in 1969, you win the first of your back-to-back team national championships at Broadmoor Golf Club. Now you're a member of that great tradition, bringing home a national championship. What was that experience like for you? Well, actually, the, the year before, Chris, we lost by, I think, a shot or two. Sorry, a shot or two at uh, Las Cruces. And I was a member of that team and shot like 65 the last round. And to lose by two, you know, it was it was heartbreaking for us. Plus, I was the youngest guy on the team and had to, and we drove everywhere. So I'm in the station wagon with Dave Williams driving all the way back to Houston, and he's telling me why we should why I should never play again, why our teams are so rotten and all this kind of stuff because we lost an NCAA. Uh, he, he'd like to to kind of give it to you if if you if you didn't perform and. Uh, so when we won the NCAA in uh, Broadmoor, we beat uh, and we beat Wake Forest, who had three or four of the Walker Cup players uh, for that that particular year uh, on that team. So uh, it was really kind of a, a feather in our ass to do that, and it was a wonderful thing to get the tradition going again. Uh, and then when we went to the the next year in uh, Ohio State at Scarlet. Uh, I was playing some of the best golf I'd ever played. Tied for low, low U.S. low amateur in the U.S. Uh, Open the week before with Ben Cross, uh, Ben Crenshaw at uh, Hazeltine, and uh, came in there feeling really good and beat Lanny Watkins by a shot, which he never let me forget to this day. That uh, it's the only <laughs> amateur tournament that he didn't win during his illustrious career. So, you know, and I, I actually actually chipped in uh, ten times on the back nine, which is totally impossible. But you wow. know, just to make it. <laughs> No, I didn't, but I chipped in a couple of times on him. But anyway, uh, it was, it was great going to the University of Houston because it, <clears throat> uh, first of all, it, it, uh, it taught you how to travel. It taught you what to do on the road, taught you what tournament golf was, what pressure was, because you had to qualify to qualify to get in. And then you had to play well on the team to stay there. So it was sort of like a mini tour before the mini tours were around. And, uh, it was, it was really cool going there. And, uh, there was tradition. We didn't have, we weren't allowed to join fraternities. We were our own fraternity. And, John, you turned pro the following year in 1971, and you're coming out onto the PGA Tour during the prime years of guys you know, like Jack Nicklaus's career, Lee Trevino, Gary Player, Arnold Palmer still winning. Hale Irwin is now out there on tour. J.C. Snead, Johnny, I mean, the legends of the game are out there, and they're winning on the PGA Tour, and now you're coming out and being a part of that group, what was it like trying to make your way on tour when you're playing up against those guys every year? Well, there again, I had a lot of experience uh, playing um, in the, the collegiate, the uh, Hubert Green, 
uh, was a good friend of mine, and, and he was a, a rookie the year before I came on the tour and won the tournament uh, in Houston uh, at Champions, uh, beat Don January in a playoff. So, you know, I always I had the feeling, and Landy was on our uh, was on the my uh, rookie year. He was he was the guy that went to the qualifying school together with me. Tom Watson was there. David Graham. So we played against a lot of really tough competition getting in, and uh, kind of knew what it, what everything was about. And, and luckily, when I was at, uh, I worked for Jimmy Demerit and Jackie Burke at Champions after I graduated from Houston, uh, they'd give you that opportunity if you thought you wanted to go on the tour uh, and uh, let you teach a little bit and sell golf balls from uh, you know behind the counter and uh, let you know that you probably didn't want to do that if you wanted to to play tour golf because it uh, kind of got in the way uh, of, of practice and playing. And through uh, Jimmy Demerit, who was Ben Hogan's best friend, uh, I learned how to play golf in Kerrville, Texas, out of Ben Hogan's book, The uh, the Five Lessons, The Fundamentals of Golf. I didn't have any professional teaching. So uh, and thanks to uh, Jimmy Demerit, I, I got to meet and play with Ben Hogan at Champions uh, before I went on the tour. Uh, it was after I'd won the NCAA and obviously in the full amateur in, in the U.S. Open, but <clears throat> Hogan took a liking to me and put me on his staff before I ever had a, um, a tour card and sent me up to Canada to play in the Canadian tour and, uh, really, uh, took me under his wing. He was my mentor for almost 20 years. So I, I, uh, I had, I had, I'd been exposed to, to a lot of greatness early on. Put it that way. And you mentioned the story about getting to to play uh, at Champions with Mr. Hogan. I read the story that you played nine holes with him during a practice round there, and you actually beat him by a stroke. What do you remember about that? Well, what I remember about it is I was working in the pro shop, and, and the, all the other assistant pros that weren't going to go trying to go on the tour were kind of jealous and stuff because I got a chance to go play and practice and stuff like that. So one of them called me up. One night and said, uh, Mr. DeMerit wanted me to call you and ask you if you'd like to play with his, as his partner tomorrow against Ben Hogan and, uh, Jackie Burke, uh, at nine o'clock. And he knew that I'd learned how to play out of Hogan's book. And Hogan was, was my idol and my hero and the guy that I tried to, to swing most like, same build and everything. So I thought it was a big joke until I showed up the next morning at eight o'clock and there they were. Uh, down on the right side of the practice tee, and I went immediately over to the left, scared to death. Now, handshaking the whole deal. So uh, finally, they waved me over to the first tee, and uh, I get to meet Ben Hogan for the first time and uh, introduce myself. I'm John Mahaffey. He says, I'm Ben Hogan. I'm kind of going, no kidding. You know, and his hands are so big and so strong, you know, and he's got on the white hat and the crisp, crisp iron, uh, light blue shirt, gray slacks. You know, the, the shine on his shoes was perfect, you know, and uh, he just looked like there's no way he could miss a golf shot. So we, we, we are, Demir and I are playing Hogan and, and, uh, and Burke. So we did play nine holes because a big thunderstorm came up and we had to, had to stop. And uh, I shot 31 actually on the front nine and he shot 34. So we go in, uh, in the locker room. And I walk, I go up to the, to the bar where Cleve, the locker room attendant is. And I sit up there and Demerit's locker is very close to the bar, which is pretty apropos. That's where, uh, best position for him to be close to the bar. <laughs> and he and, uh, 
he and Burr and uh, and Ben Hogan were sitting, you know, and kind of huddled up, and they talked a little bit, and then Hogan would raise his, his head and look over at me, and then Merrick would look over at me, and Cleve looked at me and said, what did, what did you do? And I said, I don't know what I did. He said, well, what did you shoot? I said, 31. He said, what Hogan shoot? I said, 34. He said, oh, boy. You know, like that, and I thought, well, I thought I was supposed to try to play good. And all that. So anyway, <laughs> Hogan walks over, and he says, uh, hey, young man, do you want to play golf tomorrow? And I'm, I'm an assistant. I look over at Mr. Burke and, and Mr. Demerini, and they shake their head yes. So I, same time, same deal. And that night, it rained like crazy. And uh, Champions was probably, the Cypress course was the longest golf course on the tour anyway. And it was just really soaked. And it rained. Uh, it, it rained. The wind came out of the north. I mean, it just blew hard as heck, and it, it was tough. And uh, I shot 70. Hogan shot 69. So, and we were playing for some money, which I didn't have, but the, one of the members was going to kind of back me if I needed it. So, anyway, they go through this same routine. Up, I'm, sta- I'm sitting at the bar talking to Cleve, and uh, Mr. Hogan walks over and says, uh, John. And so now he knows my name. And he says, well, you're going to have dinner at the club tonight, right? Well, back then, he really, assistants didn't have dinner at the club that often. And one of the members said, yeah, he's having dinner with us tonight. So Hogan said, okay, be there at 7. So I'm sitting at a table at 7. He walks over, and he's, uh, he leans over. He said, uh, John, how would you like to play in Colonial next week in Fort Worth? And I said, Mr. Hogan, I'd, I'd love to, but I'm not, not a member of the tour. And he goes, I know you're not a member of the tour, but I wanted to know, do you want to play in the tournament next week at Fort Worth? And I said, yes. I'd love to. So he goes, makes a phone call in to Ben Burke's office, comes back. He says, you're in. Uh, one stipulation. He says, you had to play all your practice rounds with me, and I'm going to teach you how to play the golf course. Just me alone, first off. So here I am. I, Hogan's my mentor, beginning to be my mentor. He's my hero. He's uh, won at Colonial five times, Hogan's Alley, and he's going to teach me how to play the golf course. And he's got me in the golf course, got me in the tournament. Uh, as an with an exemption, so uh, I go to the tournament. We play all the practice rounds, and it's wonderful. To, he didn't teach me; he never taught me how to. He never taught me how to swing. He taught me how to play golf, is what Hogan did. Uh, he liked my swing because obviously I tried to copy his, copy his. But he uh, he taught me how to manage myself around the golf course, what to do, how to play shots, uh, to be creative, be innovative. And uh, and not to be afraid and, and not to be one-dimensional, to have a go-to shot. He taught me all these things that it's not just teaching you how to swing a golf club. So I play the practice rounds with him, and and a tournament starts, and he's not there. I don't see him. I make the cut. I'm playing pretty good. Play good on Saturday. I'm in the hunt. Got a possible chance to win the golf tournament going in the last night. And shoot something like 39 or 40 and finish tied for 12. With Gene Little, I'll never forget that. So anyway, I'm back at my Holiday Inn in Fort Worth, packing up and going to get back on the Interstate 45 and drive back down to Houston. Pretty dejected, really, because, you know, here I had a chance to win a tournament and really prove something to a man that uh, that means an awful lot to me then. Uh, you know, just to begin with, the guy that basically taught me how to play golf out of a book. And uh, so the phone rang. 
and it's Mr. Hogan. He says, uh, John, do you know where the Hogan factory is? I said, no, sir, I don't. He says, it's on West Pafford. Find it. Be there at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I'm there at 10 o'clock in the morning. The door's open. I go in and I sit down in this chair that's about 30 feet below his, his desk, it seems like. And uh, Hogan smokes a lot. And he uh, took it, opened the drawer, took out a pack of cigarettes, put a cigarette in his mouth, and smoked the entire thing just staring at me. And I'm getting smaller and smaller and smaller and wondering what the hell is going on. <laughs> and uh, he puts the cigarette out, opens another drawer, and, and takes out two pieces of paper, hands me one of them. He says, this is a contract. I want you to represent me on the PGA Tour. He said, I want you to represent the Ben Hogan Company. And I said, but Mr. I know you're not a member of the PGA Tour, but you will be because I've already got you. Till two weeks from now, I'm going to send you up to, uh, you're going to drive from Houston to Winnipeg and you're going to play west all the way to, to event through uh, Calgary and Vancouver on the Peter Jackson Tour, the Canadian Tour. And you're going to learn how to, you just don't have enough experience. You're going to have to learn how to travel, how to better. You're going to have to know how to play in different conditions and uh, get used to a little more pressure, you know, which was, was terrific. And uh, and also, Gene Sheely, my club maker, is going to make all your clubs. Nothing is going to come out of here, uh, this factory that I don't see first. And he's telling me to approve all of it. So uh, you're going to wear the clothes, the hat, the ball, the whole deal. So, uh, and he said, you're the first one I've ever asked to do this. And I thought, oh, my goodness, <laughs> that's not a lot of pressure, is it? And uh, anyway, I went up to Canada, played all right, uh, went to PGA qualifying school after that, and, he, and uh, Hogan sent uh, Gardner Dickinson to follow me every round to make sure that I wasn't doing any, making any stupid moves. And uh, got through the tour school, and uh, then that, that kind of established, uh, I guess, a, an almost 20-year mentorship by him, and uh, I learned a lot of golf from that man, and I learned a lot about uh, life as well. Just to, And he was a wonderful man to me. Everybody thought he was so hard. Uh, but he wasn't to me. He was one of the kindest people I've ever been around. Yeah, so talk about that. It's interesting because I, I've heard sort of what you just said, that he was a really hard man, didn't talk a lot, didn't really speak to too many people, uh, man a few words, and um, it seemed like it was the exact opposite with you. Why do you think that was? Well, I think he liked my work ethic. He think I, I think he thought I was going to be maybe a second coming of him in a way. Uh, it looked like there was a lot of potential there, and uh, I, I kind of, I, I, I kind of messed that up in, in the middle of my career. But uh, I, I think he, he saw the, the potential to do uh, some some really good things. In fact, uh, my second year on tour, I won in Las Vegas, and that got me in. That was in 1973, and 19 so I played the 1974 Masters, and Hogan gave me his diagram book that he made for Augusta. He wasn't he wasn't playing Augusta anymore. His legs just wouldn't take it. Not even practice rounds or anything. So I I went uh he said, I want you to take this book and I want you this is how he, I want you to play the golf course, basically. So uh, you know, I I played the practice rounds using it and everything and noticed that on the third hole everything was in black, you know, black pencil or pen, except the third hole and, and he had written in red on the third hole, whatever you do, do not hit driver off the tee at three. Three was fine. Uh, at, at the time, obviously, the ball didn't go as far. We didn't hit as far as guys do today. It says three will keep you short of the bunkers. You know, bogey's not a bad 
score on this hole, but you can make a whole lot bigger number if you hit it in the bunkers and that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I used that. In the first round I play, uh, I play in the afternoon, and the greens are hard and everything, and I shoot 69. Uh, I was pretty good for a rookie, and uh, so I'm off early the next day. I go out, and I birdie one, and I birdie two. Now I'm tied for the lead. All right, and I'm thinking, now I'm thinking green jacket. So uh, I get to the third hole, and what do I do? I pull out driver because I'm better than Hogan, right? So I take this driver out, and I, I take it right at the left corner, right at the right corner of the left bunker, and it's cutting. And I'm thinking, that's great. You know, it's going to kick right down in the fairway. I didn't realize that there was a slope that went the opposite way. The ball hit that slope, kicked in that bunker, and I made seven, all right? And I proceed to miss the cut by a shot. So now I'm in the locker room after it's all over, and I'm again hanging my head. And uh, I get this phone call, and it's from him. He just said so a couple of things. Like He said, basically, you hit driver at three, didn't you? And I said, yes, sir, and he slammed the phone down. And I didn't talk to him for two months. Or he didn't talk to me for two months. So he finally got it resolved. And I figured out that the guy probably knew what he was talking about. I better pay attention, which I did from then on. Uh, one time he asked me to come into his office uh, before the uh, year was going to begin. I got the schedule for the for the upcoming year. So it's got like 45 tournaments on it. So he says, bring your schedule. I want, I want to talk to you about this. So I go in there, and he says, uh, all right, I want you to take this pencil, and I want you to circle or check off your favorite tournaments. So I go through there, and, and uh, I played a pretty heavy schedule, so I check off about my favorites, maybe 20 tournaments, and a little less than half. So I hand it back up to him. So he takes it, and he looks at it, and he tears it up. He throws it in the garbage can. He looked at him, and he says, as good as you play, he says, you ought to, every one of those golf courses are, ought to be your favorite. Every one of those tournaments ought to be your favorite. There's not one single tournament there that you can't win, and you've got to think that way. And that's the way he thought. That's the way he played. And he emphasized stuff like that, which I think is so important to play really tough and competitive golf. John, let's talk about some happier memories, at least from a winning perspective. In 1978, you opened the PGA Championship at Oakmont with a round of 75, followed by fantastic rounds of 67, 68, and 66. You had some experience playing Oakmont because the 1969 U.S. Amateur was held there and you played in that event. But Tom Watson had a five-stroke lead going into the final round over Jerry Pate. You were seven strokes back and still seven strokes back with 14 holes left in the tournament. At what point did you start to think, you know what? Hey, I still got a shot to win this thing. Well, I think the big turnaround was I, I, uh, after the 75, I went down to the practice tee. I played in the morning that day. And I didn't play particularly well. And I hadn't played well all year. I'd only made like $10,000 up to that point. So I went to the practice tee, and I did. I skipped lunch. I stayed down there until dark. And I thought that I might have found something. I mean, golfers do that a lot. I think I've got it now kind of deal. But this time I really felt like it because it felt like something I could repeat, and I didn't have to think about it so much. It felt good. So for the next three rounds, I did. I, I played that way. And it's the best tee to green I've ever played, and I putted marvelously that week. Uh, I don't think I, I might have had. I had one three putt that I remember, and that was on 16 that final round. But uh, I played well on the front nine, and Tom Watson played sort of so-so, and I might have picked up a shot or two. But then I remember getting to 10, 
and uh, Tom was having some trouble. I think he hit a bad tee shot in the rough and hit it short, hit it on the front of the green. Anyway, he pre-putts and makes six. I hit it in the fairway, knocked it on the front of the green, and the pin was way in the back left. And I had to play this big old sweeping, hooking putt. And I made it from 60 feet. So there's a three-shot swing right there. Then I birdie the next hole, and then birdie the uh, part of the next, birdie the one after that. So now all of a sudden, I'm I'm starting to catch up a little bit. Watson's making a bogey here or there. Uh, So by the time we get to 18, uh, Tom and I are tied, and we're one shot behind Jerry Pate, who's playing in front of us. So Tom and I both drove in the fairway at 18. Uh, I was away, and we're watching Jerry Pate, and uh, really can't tell much. Uh, the green's a little bit elevated, as you know, so you really can't tell much of what's going on up there. But you see, you hear the crowd go, ooh, like that. So you know he's missed a short putt. Well, we didn't know if it was a birdie or for par or whatever. Anyway, we found out that he made bogey, missed a three-and-a-half-footer for par. And so Tom and I both uh, had decent second shots behind the hole and awfully quick coming down the hill, so you can't be overly aggressive. So we made par. Uh, go to the first hole uh, for a playoff, um, and it's um, sudden death. And we all made pars in different ways. I think I got it up and down. The other two hit the green two put it. So I had the I, I had the honor when we we drew it uh, on the first hole. So I had the honor at the second. And it's a, a short par four with a creek down the left, bunkers on the right, heavy rough right, and probably the fastest green in the world. I'm thinking uh, from front to back. Uh, or back to front, sorry. It's just, it's like a ski slope. And they had the whole location on a little shelf in the back left. And I thought, this is my really good chance. Both these guys are hitting a whole lot further than I do. And the golf course doesn't get any shorter than this right here. I'm just going to be aggressive. So I took out a three wood and knocked it down, uh, between the water and the, the creek and the bunker. They both took out irons and laid it further back. And paid this to green. Watson hit it on the front right. So I've got an, an eight iron in my hand, uh, and, and I could hit a little draw and put it in by that pin. So I think it's about 12 feet left of the hole. Heck of a shot. Tate makes bogey. Watson puts it up and leaves it about 10 feet short. And I had maybe the fastest putt, Chris, I've ever had in my life to look at this thing. I'm not so sure I even breathed on it. And it didn't have a whole lot of break. Kept it inside left. And it's one of those that you pick out a spot about, you know, three or four inches in front of your ball, and if you roll it over that, you figure you got a good chance. Well, this ball went right over the top of that to dead center. And I don't remember much after that because I was airborne. <laughs> yeah, I was sort of curious. You know, what what does it feel like when that putt disappears? That's got to be just the, the most wonderful elation, you know, of your golf career outside of probably winning the national championship. Well, to the same hand, because 1975, I lost the U.S. Open in an 18-hole playoff with Lou Graham at Medina. In 1976, I lost the U.S. Open to Jerry Pate on the 18th hole when he made birdie at Atlanta Athletic Club. So I'd had a couple of close calls. And this was kind of like, okay, you know, enough is enough. This is It's my turn. I won this. You know, not that you can always make that happen, but that was the, the positive feeling instead of the, you know, you have disappointments like I had in two U.S. Opens. I can either make you or break you. And I think that helped make me uh, a whole lot better player and able to handle the pressure a whole lot, whole lot better at the time. And, John, you back up that win by winning the following week at the American Optical Classic at Pleasant Valley Country Club. 
this time by two strokes over Raymond Floyd and Dr. Gil Morgan. And Raymond was the defending champion there. Talk about backing it up and winning in back-to-back weeks. Well, the funny thing about that, Chris, is you remember a guy by the name of Joe Braley? Does that bring a, ring a bell? I do. He, yeah. Yeah. Joe Joe had these light shafts. Hogan thought about it, too, when he had the apex shaft. But, you know, you get a lighter shaft, heavier head. You can swing it faster with more mass. You hit it further, maybe straighter, whatever. Well, Braley had the same kind of thing. Precision shafts was his deal. So after I won the PGA, Joe and I were pretty good friends. So he says, I want to I want to try something. So I want you to, to come to... uh my place is not that far from, uh, it's an hour from Pleasant Valley or whatever. He said, I want you to, uh, I want to check your, your shafts. I want to see what your shafts are like and stuff. He said, I won't have to take them out. I can do it this way or another. So I go over there and the guy takes all my grips off, you know, and now he's trying to check the vibrations. And, you know, I had these grips on there. They had reminders in the back and they were all on there perfect for the PGA. Well, now he doesn't have the same kind of grip. He's got, he's cord, he's got rubber. So now I'm going to the next tournament with, with uh, still got the same clubs, but I got different, different grips, different sizes. Uh, reminders not exactly in the same place, but a whole lot of confidence. And, uh, I think that's why I won that week. I think I hit the ball again about as good as I ever had. I hit, uh, a lot of greens at Pleasant Valley, which was a very, very long golf course and a lot of long irons and stuff and played really great. Played, uh, uh, head on against uh, Raymond Floyd the last round, and, uh, and that stare is, is pretty cold. Not quite a Hogan stare, but it's close enough. And uh, you know, that's kind of a feather in your cap if you beat uh, beat Raymond Floyd head to head. And we had a good battle, but I, I was able to. Uh, I think I buried the last hole to win by two. John, you played on the 1979 Ryder Cup team a year. You guys won 17 to 11. How did the pressure of playing in the Ryder Cup compare to playing in the events you had played in during your college career and then getting out on the PGA Tour and then major championship pressure? How does Ryder Cup pressure compare to that? Well, I think pressure is pressure. A lot of it's self-inflicted. But the thing is, it's really the first time I'd ever had a chance to represent my country. And uh, when they played the national anthem, in the opening ceremonies and stuff before our first round, I mean, I was just shaking. Uh, absolutely petrified, uh, and you know, just didn't want to make a mistake. Didn't want to embarrass myself. Didn't want to embarrass my country. I uh, wanted to play the best golf I could play, and I wasn't playing very well at the time. And uh, just because of the PGA winning the PGA Championship, uh, that was an automatic onto the Ryder Cup deal back then. So uh, they kind of had to have me. I don't think Billy Casper, our captain, really wanted to play me that much. In fact, I really kind of feel bad about it in a way because I played with uh, Hale Irwin uh, one, in one match, and I played with uh, Lee Elder in another. And I, I, I don't think I did I did them a disservice. I did not play very well, not on purpose, but uh, we I lost uh, we lost both those matches. Uh, but I was fortunate enough to beat Brian Barnes uh, in the singles on Sunday, so uh, it wasn't a total loss. But it was probably the most pressure I've ever felt. It was uh, the most wonderful feeling to be on a team and to win a Ryder a Ryder Cup. That was the first time the European team uh, was the European team. Uh, Savvy was there, and uh, the whole deal. It was it was really pretty neat. And John, you know the U.S. teams, as I know you're well aware, dominated the Ryder Cup you know, all the way up to the mid 1980s. 
And then everything has sort of flipped on us. And now the, the European team has, has been the dominant team over the last 30 plus years. What, what do you think the U.S. team has got to do? We're just a couple of weeks away from it this year. What do we need to do differently or better in order to uh, kind of flip it back in our favor? Enjoy it. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Uh, I think these guys are all, I mean, the, the quality of play on all the tours in the world today are, are, is just incredible for, uh, for me to see. It's, it's fantastic what these guys can do. And they've, they've all got, uh, they've all got the talent to, to do this stuff. But I think our guys, uh, whether they realize it or not, try to put too much pressure on themselves and, uh, try to force things. I think the other guys enjoy playing and they enjoy the moment. I don't know that we enjoy the moment enough. John, just a couple more before I let you go. And kind of getting back to your your days uh, as, as a broadcaster, how did you walk the line between sharing what you saw and what you saw happening out on the golf course versus, you know, not alienating the guys that were your former peers? How did you stay away from that? Well, I had a pretty good guy that was, was a, a sort of a mentor for me. And that was Dave Moore Jr. Okay. Uh, Dave Moore, when he worked for, uh, for ABC and worked with Byron Nelson, I, I had an injury. I, I'd broken my hand, uh, right before a couple of the Texas tournaments. And Dave came up to me and he said, how would you like to work at ABC? And, and Terry Jastro, the guy that beat me in the Texas State Junior way back in the day was actually a producer for ABC for these. And Terry says, you know, why don't you come? Come work a couple of tournaments and see if you can do it, see how you like it. So just listening to David Marr and how he approached things made it so much easier for me because he never threw anybody under the bus. And I tried I tried never to do that. I'm not going to call a bad shot a good shot or give a guy an excuse, but you always kind of got to give the guy an out. Something like, you know, that wasn't the best shot in this situation, but you got to remember. This guy is one of the best players that's ever lived, or his short game is fabulous. He might even hold this. You give the guy an out. Instead of burying him, you give him an out. And that's what I always tried to do more than anything else. Not try to sugarcoat anything, but not bury the guy. And, John, you wrote a book about your time in the game, and it was titled Hogan's Boy, which I believe Sam Sneed used to refer to you as. Talk about your book and what people will learn when they pick it up. I wrote the book, Chris, for a couple of reasons. One, to see if I could write, because I really always wanted to do that. But I devoted so much time to golf that I didn't um, I didn't really pursue it. So I felt like I was fortunate to play through several eras of the game, all the way from Nelson, Hogan, and Snead, all the way up to Tiger and Phil and everybody in between. And most of those guys were, always, were good friends of mine, somebody you didn't have to go through gatekeepers to talk to on the telephone. Uh, if you had a problem, you could talk to him about it. Uh, it was a great uh, fellowship, a great uh, fraternity to be a part of. Uh, and having been a major champion and so forth, I felt like, you know, I'd earned the right in a way to write a book about about my experiences and to give people a little bit different view of, like I was talking about earlier, Ben Hogan being much more of uh, of a kinder soul to me, if he knew that you had a work ethic, if, if he knew you cared enough about it. Lee Trevino was the same way with me. So was Arnold Palmer. I mean, uh, Trevino taught me, taught me how to fade the golf ball. 
Uh, he taught me how to hit the little plated wedges around the green. Uh, all kinds of things like that. And, and great guys to play practice rounds. Don January, Littler, Miller Barber, uh, all took us under their wing, uh, and showed us how to do, how to play in pro, how to get into corporate pro-ams, wear a coat and tie, say yes sir and yes ma'am, learning how to do clinics. And because to give back to the game and to give back to the people that gave us the opportunity to play in front of them, the sponsors, the people that came out and watched us, the fans, you know, that's what, that's what it was all about. Build your product, build your name. And these guys all thought that, believed it, and lived it. And uh, that's what this my book's basically all about. It's not about a lot of teaching, but it's about how it was back in the day. And it was pretty darn cool. We traveled like it was like a circus, all right. And we all we all traveled and we all did our stuff. We tried to play like heck and beat the other guy during the week. We were best of friends after that, and it, it stayed that way. Uh, it has through my whole lifetime, and and I wouldn't trade it for the world. John, expand on that just a, a little bit because I think that's something that's unique that that uh, not enough people are aware of is how the the veterans out there on the PGA Tour would take you under their wing and not just from uh, you know what it's like to be uh, on the PGA Tour and life on tour and stuff like that, but really teach you shots and teach you how to hit things. Um, I think we we think of you guys as out there beating each other's brains and like you said and trying hard to compete and probably not wanting to, to share trade secrets, but it was really the opposite of that, wasn't it? It was. I think everybody everybody wanted to beat somebody, everybody else, but everybody was playing at their best. That's when you know you can really play. You know, when, when, you just, when you beat the best with your best. You know, and, and that's what these guys, are. Uh, Trevino, for instance, when he taught me how to hit the bladed wedge, I came into the final hole of the Tournament of Champions one year playing with Jack Nicklaus, uh, tied with Johnny Miller and uh, Johnny Miller had parred the last hole. So Nicholas and I were in the last group and I, I hit it. It was at Lacoste in uh, Carlsbad and I hit it on the green and two and it just kind of rolls off the edge of the green up against the collar. And I'm putting with the bullseye back in the day. And I was never, I wasn't aware of or even thought about uh, hitting a three wood out of there or, you know, bellying a wedge or anything like that. So I tried to put it, putter got hung up in the grass. I left it 10 feet short and missed the putt, lost the tournament by a shot. And uh, I think Trevino and John Brody, they were in the, the locker room, and uh, they were watching it on, on the tube. They came out, uh, or Trevino came out with three golf balls and a wedge and was waiting for me when I got out of the going tent and took me up to the putting green. He said, I want to show you something, man. He said, how did, how did you not know how to play that shot? He said, let me show you this. And he did. He showed me how to blade it because that way the ball comes out of the grass so much more consistently. It's almost like a putt. You almost have a chance to make it every time. And I never dreamed of anything like that. So these guys, they they learned how to play by by digging it. Well, it wasn't uh, out of the dirt. Okay, if you want to put it that way, the people use that a lot. But that's the truth. Trial and error. And uh, they discarded all the stuff that didn't work, but they figured out what did. And they were not afraid to share that with you if they thought that you would put good use, put it to good use, if you would work at it and you would use it. And uh, but it's different today in, an, in in another way, Chris. Think about this: all these youngsters, and there's nothing wrong with this. Don't get me wrong; they all have their teams. They all have a lot of their their fathers or their teachers or pros that are taught their kids how to play. 
they don't really they don't really need somebody to teach them how to play. They've learned how to play the game. They've played so much longer. They start out at you know almost infants. It seems like some of them, uh, and and they're tournament tough by the time they get to college. Uh, they played great high school. By the time they get to college, they can really play. And then when they get on the tour, they're ready to win. And they have their teams. They don't really need all this stuff. Uh, they have their camaraderie with their friends. There's still the same kind of deal out there. You still have the guys that that run around together and stuff like that. It's great to see. But they don't. They don't. I don't know that they need the the same kind of of help that we that we kind of did. It was a little bit different back then. We didn't. You were your own team, basically. John, before I let you go, how can our listeners stay up to date with you? Whether they're following you and it's online or it's on social media, where are you at? How can we stay up to date? Well, let's see. I'm at Hogan's Boy uh, at uh, on uh, Twitter and uh, Hogan's Boy Comcast dot net is an email, and the book you can get through Amazon. Well, John, it has been a lot of fun having you as part of the show. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of the stories and the the things that uh, you got to experience along the way. I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again sometime. I'd love to do it, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. John, stay safe. All the best to you and your family. Like I said, look forward to catching up with you again soon. Okay. Appreciate it. Thanks. See you, John. That's the great John Mahaffey. And, folks, I am 100% sincere. I feel like we have just scratched the surface of all the great stories and experiences that uh, John has had. Look forward to checking out his book again. It's called Hogan's Boy. Um, I'm sure it's great stories in there and a lot of great lessons and a lot of great things that uh, he experienced and that Mr. Hogan and uh, other greats of the game uh, taught him along the way. But um, from a great college career, to an outstanding PGA Tour career, to one of the all-time greats behind the mic. Uh, John has certainly had a a full golf career that uh, I'm sure there's a whole lot more to learn about and uh, a whole lot more stories that we could sit back and, and enjoy. So looking forward to having John back on the show again, like I say, real soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out again to Dottie Pepper and John Mahaffey for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetee.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And speaking of that, scheduled to join me next week are Golf Magazine Top 100 instructor Tim Cusick will be back with me. 1979 Bay Hill Classic champion Bob Byman will be here making his Next on the Tee debut. Another one of the Top 100 instructors, Shane LeBaron, will be making a return trip. He's always fantastic. And top course designer and former PGA Tour pro John Fott will also be making his next On the Tee debut. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you come back and be a part of it with us. Folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great podcasting sites and apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora has jumped on board, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Podcast.co. And folks, if you have another favorite podcasting site and app, just go to the search bar, type in Next on the T. I'm sure we're on there as well. Folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I really appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the T a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.
In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps a $5 minimum balance required. The fan is ready for brave season. Are you? 3-1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season.